Not long ago, a smartphone with a camera came out, a front-facing camera, the selfie camera. It came out and it had such high quality, you may have heard of this, it had such high resolution that people actually that bought the phone began complaining because the camera was of such high resolution that it made them feel insecure when they would take pictures of themselves. It showed every blemish, every pore. It was of too high quality. So people that actually bought this phone began to complain because the camera was too honest with how they actually looked. That's not why they took the selfie. It was to give an accurate. It was to give a, a positive, a flattering appearance. In our psalm this morning, as we approach this letter het in the Hebrew uh, letter, as we move through Psalm 119, the psalmist has come to a point where he's given us a reflection. Like with that phone, a desire that when he's seen, that such an honest reflection would be given, that when others see him, they would see the Lord. That the deeper that you would look, the closer that you would examine, poor by poor, of his face, of his character, of his life, even in seasons of suffering, that people would see the Lord even greater in the context of his life. And that is what our psalm this morning is about. If you're new with us, Psalm 119, we're walking through this incredible gift of God. It's been called an alphabet of prayers, an incredible arrangement that God has given us, given the bride a gift to pray to him, to meditate on, to, to surround our lives and orient our lives, to truly believe, as Jesus said, that we shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And in this particular strophe, this poetic paragraph, we have an opportunity to, to cry out like the psalmist to make this the prayer of our life. And we would say even in the areas of our life where this doesn't reflect our hearts, this doesn't reflect where we're truly at this morning as we come in, that we would make this our prayer to God. We would make this our prayer to Yahweh, the Lord, that truly when others see us, God, we want them to see you. As others see us go through seasons of suffering or discontentment, we want them to see you even greater, Lord. Let's see first and foremost as we come to the Lord's Word in verse 57 through 60. Make this your prayer with me this morning, that when others see me, I want them to see the Lord. When others see me, I want them to see the Lord. And every one of these verses, every one of these goals that we're building our, our sermon around, these three components I've, I've built this message around from this text, I think it's going to do two things for every one of us, two sides of the same coin. Side one is going to cause us to say, does this reflect who I truly am? Does this reflect what others see when they look at me? But I wanted to make sure it does the opposite side of the coin as well, that you wouldn't just stay in discouragement and say, you know what, that doesn't really reflect me, but that you would Allow that to flip over to the other side to say, but Lord, I want that to reflect me. I want this to reflect my goals and my desires. And as we look at this first idea, when others see me, I want them to see the Lord. There's a reflective question to say, when others see me, do they see the Lord? When others look at my marriage, do they see the Lord honored there? Do they see Christ-like sacrificial servant leadership and how I treat my wife? When they see how I work and my work ethic and how I treat people, do they see the Lord. And when the areas of my life, I have to be honest and say, I don't think people see him very well, that this prayer would become my true life prayer. Lord, when others see me in these areas, I want them to see you. I want them to see Yahweh. I want them to see the Lord. So verse 57 through 60, reading from the ESV, if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in a pewback Bible in front of you there. 
And the psalmist, he writes, The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. The Lord is my portion. When a parent dies, typically it leaves to their children their estate. The psalmist doesn't begin this letter by saying, wealth is my estate. But he says, the Lord is my portion. Not health, not wealth, not success as the world sees it, but my portion is the Lord. My portion is the Lord. My prize is the Lord. And that's the cry of the people of God for all time. That's what makes heaven heaven. That's what makes life in the seasons that we have right now, you right now where you're sitting, that's what makes following Christ sweet is because we have the Lord. The Lord, He Himself, Yahweh, is our portion. He is our inheritance. This is actually repeated several places. I won't give you time to check these, but you're welcome to write them down. Psalm 16:5. David writes, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You, Lord, hold my lot. The Levitical priests, actually, it's, this is such a consistent theme for the Levitical priests that some think the author of Psalm 119 may have been a, a priest. Remember, a priest had to be a Levite, so Levitical priest. Numbers 18.20, we have this reflection. So God said to Aaron, and therein the Levitical priests of Israel, God says, you shall have, to the priests, you shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. Why? To the priests, the Lord says, for I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. Just like what the psalmist says in verse 57, the Lord is my portion. The Lord is my portion. This is echoed in the New Testament as well. In Romans 8, 17, we are heirs of God in Christ. The Lord is our portion. Christ is ours. Christ is ours. Two questions then. If the Lord is my portion, and two questions. Question one, what do you say when you say that? The Lord is my portion. It causes every one of us to make one of two statements. Either A, is the Lord my portion? It brings us to a point of doubting. Is the Lord my portion? Is he really my portion? Wow, I feel discontent. Wow, I feel defeated. Wow, I'm stuck in this habitual sin. Is the Lord my portion? Or on the opposite side is a declaration. The Lord is my portion. Wherever you find yourself this morning, I think this is something that Christians wrestle with, believers wrestle with. I counsel on a regular basis. Not a month goes by that I don't counsel someone in this area. And they're, they're wondering in their mind, am I really the Lord's leads them in their life to wander? I know it sounds clever, but it's very true. The wondering, the spending time sitting down in an isolated location thinking, am I truly the Lord's, leads many people to spend their life wandering around. Am I really the Lord's? Is the Lord really my portion in life? And what does the psalmist do? He declares it true. He fixed his eyes upon the Lord. He's gone to the Lord in prayer. That's who he's talking about. The Lord is my portion. 
I promise to keep your words. He's talking to the Lord. So here's my encouragement from you. Very beginning, and this very first idea that when others see me, I want them to see the Lord. When you're wrestling in a season where you're saying, am I really the Lord's? Do what the psalmist does and look to the Lord and pray to him and claim to him according to the scriptures, Lord, you are my portion. Don't just spend time by yourself in isolation wrestling with this. Am I really the Lord's? Do what the psalmist says and look to the Lord and talk to him. And tell him, Lord, Lord, I am yours. Oh, I want to keep your word. In the areas that I don't want to, help me to desire to keep your word. Because I am yours and you are my portion. You see the shift. Stop wondering and start looking at the Lord. That's what the psalmist does. The Lord truly is enough for us as our portion. The Lord truly is enough for us as our portion. Now, it's Father's Day. It's Father's Day. Pastors wrestle on a regular basis. What do you do on Father's Day? Do you speak about fathers? What about people that had horrible experiences with their fathers growing up? What about those who have lost their fathers? It becomes a very emotionally difficult day. Yet the Lord has declared for us in the Psalms that He is the Father to the fatherless. The Lord models for us in life. He shows us what it truly is to be gracious and merciful and abounding in love. He is a good, good Father. He is the one we build our lives around. We orient our lives. He is good. You will never annoy the Lord by looking to Him. You will never overstay your welcome. The Lord's goodness and kindness and care truly, as the psalmist says on this day, what a beautiful text, the Lord is my portion. You can't grow bored of Him. You can't pester Him. You can't overindulge on Him. You can't be too happy in Him. You can't brag upon Him too much. You cannot embellish who the Lord is. The Lord is your portion. The Lord is your portion. Let's say that together. The Lord is my portion. One more time. The Lord is my portion. If we were to receive an inheritance and it wasn't enough to live on, we'd be wandering around the other side, well, I still have to work, I still have to do this, I still have to do something to provide. But the psalmist from the very beginning of Het says, the Lord is my portion. It's your promise I aim to keep. It's your promise I aim to live in because he truly is enough for you. He is enough for me. The areas of my life where it reflects that that may not be true, that I'm wrestling to believe that's actually true. No, the, the Lord is my portion. As a church family, grace the Lord, our maker and sustainer, he is our portion. Our calling, our responsibility is to remind each other, to remind the generations, for the old to teach the young, the Lord really is good. His word really is true. He really is your portion. And for the young to remind the older who are going through seasons of suffering, listen, what you told me when I was younger still is true. The Lord really is good. His promises are worthy to be kept. He really is your portion. That's the ministry of the body of Christ together for the glory of God. Now we can't change the past, but we can resolve in this moment to, to say with assurance, the Lord is my portion. To all who will turn and trust in Christ, this is a reality. Verse 58. Look at verse 58. This is, this is beautiful. He says, I entreat your favor. 
I entreat your favor. Now, the Hebrew has this metaphorical expression here that usually gets translated out because it's so unusual for what we would say. There's this saying here. It gets translated, which is totally accurate, I entreat your favor. But in the Hebrew, it's a picture that says, to make the, the, the face sweet. To make the face sweet. So you can see why most translators say, I entreat your favor, because... I've never heard a saying like that in my life, to make your face sweet. Imagine at our next men's minute, we're having a men's charge this Thursday, and we began in saying, oh, oh, to make your face sweet. That'd be quite the charge. But in the text, in the Hebrew, this is actually incredibly beautiful. It's a striking image. I want to give you a picture. It's the idea of caressing one's face to make it soft. I'll give you an example that reflects this. This is what the psalmist has. This is what you, believer in Jesus Christ, one who's turned and placed your faith and trust in Jesus alone, this is your gift. You entreating the Lord's favor. You, in whatever season of life you're in this morning, going to the Lord, you're entreating His favor. You make His face soft. I'll give you an example. The women's retreat. Uh, I was left with Matthias, who's six months old, and, and, and Sarah is his source of food. And she gave me an emergency bottle that I used for a syringe to keep him powered up. And the first couple hours went great, super good. Matthias was very patient with me. But as the day went on and he got hungrier and hungrier, he began to realize, wait a minute, am I stuck with you alone forever? <laughs> and so what began as kind of some mumbles began to become some very displeasant cries. And then about an hour left before Sarah would get home, they, be, they began to become rage cries. Just rage. It didn't matter what I did. I mean, I, I did everything I could do. Carried him around, did everything. didn't matter. He was distraught. I'm weeping. I'm just tears, weeping. didn't matter what I did. And when Sarah came in, it's a true story. When Sarah came in, he saw her stop crying. I took him and I gave him to her. She took him in her arms and he looked at her, little six-month-old baby, and he reached his hand out and he slowly touched her face with amazement in his eyes. And what do you think she did? She melted. Right? Her face was made soft. I'm just a moment from pure anger and rage and confusion to, to seeking after the one that could satisfy him and, and her face, her heart melted right away. He was just fixed on her. That's the picture that the Hebrew gives us here when you and I entreat the Lord. Yahweh, the Lord, you will never pester Him by entreating Him, by going to Him. Wherever you're at in life, you can go to Him this morning. Soften His face. He loves you. When others see us, we want them to see the Lord. He likes it when we come to him, and that's why he says, he desires to be gracious toward me according to his promise. This is the desires of the Lord. That's what the psalmist says there. He desires to be gracious toward me, toward you, toward us as a church body, according to his promise. So when others see me, I want them to see the Lord. When others see us, we want them to see the Lord. And he says in 59 and 60, When I consider or have considered my actions, I reassess them according to your word. So I take my feet and I fix them back toward you. That gives us a hint. We're going to look at it here in a little bit, a few more verses. But right away, we should take away the nugget that the psalmist isn't perfect. 
The psalmist finds his life drifting away from where they're supposed to be. And so he, by the word of God, the word of God is what steers him back to the right direction. And it reorients him. So keep that in mind. The psalmist isn't perfect, but he knows a perfect Lord. The psalmist isn't perfect, but he knows a perfect Lord. It's going to come in real handy when we get towards the end of this strophe. So keep that in mind. So Spirit of God, we ask, would you convict us? Would you lead us to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry? When others see us, Lord, we want them to see the Lord. Do you agree? When others see us, we want them to see the Lord. Agreed? Very good. Secondly, when others see me struggle, let's get personal now. When others see me struggle, I want them to see the Lord. 61 and 62. When others see me struggle, I want them to see the Lord. Let me read these verses. The psalmist continues, Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, these traps, these roots that go around me, though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteousness. Once again, this is about the third time so far at this point in Psalm 119 that the wicked, those that do not fear the Lord, are depicted as hunters. They're hunting for those who fear the Lord, and their desire is to entangle them in the world's affairs. Their goal is to distract those who fear the Lord to get them no longer to fear the Lord. How would your life change this morning if you truly found out somebody was hunting you? Not like just trying to find you, but they were hunting you. How would your life from this moment forward reorient itself? The psalmist says, though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. I wanted to do something here, so keep this marked and go back to Psalm 23. We're going to do some comparison and contrasting. These verses, actually this whole strophe, is very similar to perhaps the most famous of all psalms, Psalm 23. If you've attended a funeral, you've probably heard Psalm 23 read, even if you're very unfamiliar with the scriptures. 23rd Psalm, Psalm of David. There's some beautiful similarities right here in this verse that I want to make sure that we catch. It's absolutely tremendous. And as you go over to Psalm 23, look particularly in verse 4. And as you go there and you fix your eyes on Psalm 23, verse 4, I'm going to read again Psalm 119, verse 61. Keep it fresh here. Here's verse 61 of Psalm 119. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. Now, Psalm 23, verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. The valley of the shadow of death is akin to verse 61, the cords of the wicked. Sin and temptation in these areas, they lead to death. The psalmist says, even though the, the, the traps, the cords of the wicked surround me, they ensnare me. As David says it, the valley of the shadow of death is all around me. David's comfort is, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What's the comfort for the, the author of Psalm 119? I do not forget your law. At midnight I, raise, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. In Psalm 23, David says, Though I am the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
In Psalm 119, the psalmist says, though the trappings of the wicked entrap me, I hold your promise, I hold to your word. The very components that give David in Psalm 23 comfort, the rod and the staff, in Psalm 119, that's the promise in the word of God that gives him comfort. Do you see the connection? So we think of Psalm 23 and we, and we think oftentimes we, we imagine the imagery because the imagery is beautiful, but I'm arguing the application is the same. When you find yourself in seasons of entrapment, you find yourself in season near death and mourning and grieving or sin surrounds you, draw near to the Lord according to His Word, for His Word functions as a rod and staff to correct and to comfort. The Word of God is what brings us, by the Spirit of God, great comfort in seasons of hardship. And that's a beautiful connection I don't think we want to miss. The psalmist desires for when others see him, even in times of struggling, to see the Lord more magnified. Let me say that again. The psalmist desires, even in seasons of great struggling, even when in the valley of the shadow of death, even when the cords of the wicked ensnare him, his desire, by grabbing hold of the Word of God and applying the Word of God and trusting the Word of God, even at midnight, to rise and to praise the Lord according to His Word, his desire then is in seasons of suffering, others would look at him and see even more the truth of Yahweh because he builds his life on the Word of God in seasons of suffering. I'll give you an example where this is true in our lives. And we ought to pray for the Lord's deliverance and hardship. We, it's not saying, I'm not saying we shouldn't pray that. That's a legitimate thing to pray. Of course, the Lord would be merciful to us and comfort us as we mourn or whatever season we're in. It's not wrong to pray that the Lord would alleviate our suffering and hardship. But what we should be aware of is like the psalmist. When suffering begins to be amped up in our lives... Eyes are increasingly fixed upon us, even if it's just the eyes of one person. And therein the opportunity for the Lord's faithfulness to be demonstrated by His people that build their life according to His Word, His glory is shown even manifested more and more and more. I'll give you an example. When you're at the pool and somebody's just floating on a raft, it doesn't draw your attention. But if all of a sudden you're at the pool and you hear splashing, commotion happens all of a sudden out of nowhere, and somebody's struggling to swim, it would have your total attention. And hopefully the attention of the lifeguard, right? But in the areas of life, the times of life that you find yourself fluttering around in the water, realize that the Lord wants to be seen in the context even of your suffering. Lord, would you make that our prayer? Would you make that each of our individual prayers? God, truly, when we suffer, we want others to see you. When they see us, we want them to see you. When they see us suffer, we want them to see you even more. And that's the calling of the local church, the body of Christ, to help each other because we've got a whole body of lifeguards. That means we need to be aware enough in other people's lives as well when we see the cords of evil, when we see the valley of the shadow of death, when we see the cords of the wicked ensnare one another, we need to be ready to jump in like lifeguards and help each other swim. That's our responsibility as members, one to another.
and as well your elders to you and you to your elders as well. Don't be embarrassed to flail, but while you flail, don't forsake the Lord's word. Don't be embarrassed to flail. Don't be embarrassed to flail. But while you flail, remember the rod and the staff that comfort you. Let's go on third. Third, we come to 63 and 64. I've broken it down into two ways. When others see the Lord's handiwork, I want them to see me. When others see the Lord's handiwork, I want them to see me. Don't worry about the thundering outside. I had an alert on my phone that said stay in from about noon to 6 or so. So if I can make this out to noon, I get six more hours to preach and finish. We'll finish Psalm 119. We'll just run right through Psalm 119. It'll be a great time. When others see the Lord's handiwork, I want them to see me. Two ways. Verse 63, I want them to see me gathering with his handiwork, that is his people. When others see the Lord's handiwork, his handiwork, what he's done, what he's doing, I want them to see me. Two components of this. That means that I want them to see me gathering with his handiwork. And his handiwork is demonstrated in the lives of his people. His sheep. So as people look at the handiwork of the Lord, I want them to see me with them. I want them to see me gathering with the people of the Lord. Verse 63, he says, I am a companion of all who fear you. He's talking to Yahweh, the Lord. Of those who keep your precepts. It's descriptor. In verse 23, David said that he will fear no evil. And now here in verse 63, I am a companion of all who fear you. You see the connections. There's a really strong connection, verse chapter 23, Psalm 23, to this particular strophe. David says, I will fear no evil. The psalmist here says, I am a companion of those who fear you, Lord. I'm a companion of those who fear you. A right fear of the Lord leads us to not have to, in the same sense, fear evil because the Lord is sovereign, the Lord is good. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep his precepts. Whether we're talking about the Old or the New Covenant, the people of Yahweh are meant to walk out their faith according to the Word of God in the context of community, a community that's committed to holding one another accountable, to loving one another, to caring for one another, to teach one another, to rebuke one another, to do the good words, works that the Lord has prepared for them to do before the foundations of the world. This is a consistent theme for the people of Yahweh and all the Scripture. Now, let's, let's be honest here. He says, I am a companion of all who fear you. What makes him a companion of those who fear him? What makes him a companion of those who fear him? Does he say, I chose him? I'm a companion of my best friends. Is that what he said? I'm a companion of all the people that live right around me automatically. I'm a companion of all these fill in the blank of whatever social group. No. What's the key descriptor that makes him a companion of these others? They fear you. Does the psalmist make them fear the Lord, Yahweh? No. The Lord does. And it's that common denominator that overwhelms all the rest of profile descriptions in the world. We are companions. We're adopted as a family. We're made into a bride. 
as those who fear the Lord. That's our common descriptor, and that's our desire to be with the, the body, those who fear the Lord. That's the key marker. Many may claim, I fear the Lord, but they gather. That's what we do as family. We gather together. It happens on a Sunday morning context, but we want in our lives to be seen gathered with other people who fear the Lord. David says, I fear you. The psalmist has said repeatedly before, up to this point, I fear the Lord. Now he says for the first time, my companions are those who also fear you. They are my companions, my brothers, my sisters, my close ones. Why are they my close ones? They're those who marked by fear are marked by a common mission. His mission he describes here is that, verse 63, they are those who keep your precepts. They have a desire to obey the Lord. They're marked by a fear of God, and they're marked by a common mission. In Jesus Christ, the goodness of the gospel, the good news is that all of us, we didn't become companions because of our efforts. We didn't become companions because the, the smartness, the, the, our abilities to put things together. We became companions because we were adopted. We were bought with a price. That you and I, regardless of what we've done, if you will but repent, turn, and place your faith and trust in Jesus, this becomes our common story. We now fear the Lord, the one we know, Jesus, the hero of all the Scripture. He came to live a sinless life to fulfill all that's written. And He laid His life down on the cross for your sin personally and my sin personally. And he was hung on a tree on a cross, laid His life down, defeated death, and rose again. He ascended to heaven, and He is coming someday soon. And all who but turn and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the King of their life, we are those who fear Him. We're those who our life's purpose is now is to be the people who aim to live for His glory, being and making disciples unashamedly to the ends of the earth. This is our calling. And therefore, we're made companions regardless of skin color, regardless of education. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who have kept your precepts. If you came to church this morning, if you ever came to a local church thinking that we're the finished product, you've made a grave mistake. If you've came hoping for elders and a senior pastor who's, who's going to be perfect, you've made a grave mistake. And the psalmist didn't presume that either. But he did presume that the people would be marked by a fear of the Lord in their behavior and their beliefs. We know he doesn't think he's perfect because a few verses earlier in verse 59, he said, my feet turn according to your words, which gives us an idea that his feet were not walking according to the word for at least a moment when he did this survey of his life. So we are not perfect, but we worship a perfect Savior, and a day will come when we will functionally be perfect in the Lord. But until he calls us home, we aim to be a people who fear the Lord, who aim to keep his precepts because we've been adopted by faith in Christ and our portion is the Lord. That's his gift to us. Practical application as we think about what's it mean to gather with his handiwork, his people. As you plan your vacations this summer, if you're leaving town this summer, you're going to be gone on a Sunday morning, practical application. Do some Google research. doesn't matter if you're going to the, the coast or the mountains or wherever you're going. Or an all-expenses-paid staycation, whatever you're doing. 
Do some Googling. Find a church of like faith and like message and gather with them that Sunday morning for worship. I promise you, parents, it will impact your kids. Grandparents, it will impact your grandchildren and your kids. You're saying, but we're at the beach. It's vacation time. Yes, yes. But I want to gather with his handiwork, his people. We want to gather with the people of the Lord, for they are our companions. They also fear Yahweh. So, so do some research. Find it. Gather together with the local body. Worship. When others see the Lord's handiwork, I want them to see me. I want them to see me gathering with His handiwork, His people. And secondly, verse 64, I want them to see me appreciating His handiwork, His creation. I want them to see me appreciating His handiwork, that is, His creation. 64, this is a very interesting verse. 64, the earth, O Lord, Yahweh, the earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. Why is this a fascinating verse? Because this is that word hesed. This word hesed is used here in a very unusual position. We spoke of hesed about two different times so far. We're not going to unpack it entirely, but as a reminder, hesed is the merciful. We sang it uh, just a few moments ago about the, the merciful love of God. The hesed of God is the covenant, faithful, merciful love of God. It's terms of salvation, if you will. And it's based upon the Lord's goodness and faithfulness and character and who He is. It's the hesed of God, the, the merciful, faithful kindness, according to His promise, His word. The hesed of God is kindness, merciful faithfulness, according to His word. This verse applies it to creation, not in a salvation sense, not in a salvation sense, but in the sense that the Lord's merciful kindness is demonstrated through His creation, through the power of storms, through the beauty of sunsets, even on a molecular level through a microscope to see the design and the power of God's attributes. His kindness is seen through His creation. I won't give you time to flip there, but just remember the last verse of Jonah is another example where this happens. He speaks to Jonah and he says, listen, he's going to show this particular kindness, this unmerited kindness upon the people, and also he mentions the, the livestock. He says, should the livestock, not only do they have 120,000 people, but they also have this livestock. You think, what? And God's kindness is shown, his merciful kindness is shown to the livestock. But in Romans, you may have one more familiar, Romans 1, 19 through 20. Again, appreciating his handiwork, his creation. God is not his creation. It's a totally different belief system. But his attributes, his power is demonstrated through creation. Romans 1, 19 through 20, that we ought to appreciate. Appreciate him as we appreciate it. Romans 1, 19 through 20 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, they have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made. And so they, so man, is without excuse. The creation of the Lord ought to lead us to respond to the goodness of the Creator. The painting ought to lead us to say, oh, what a marvelous painter we have. But in a fallen state, as sin has impacted us, and sin has impacted the nature of man, 
that leads a multitude of men and women for generations and generations to look and to worship creation, to worship the painting rather than the painter. And yet the psalmist says, Oh, the Lord's hesed. His kind faithfulness is seen in His creation. And it leads him at a conclusion of looking at the beauty and the power and the attributes of the Lord upon His creation to say what? To say what? Four words. Teach me your statutes. The Lord's hesed and the Lord's faithfulness and the Lord's salvation is seen in His life, the life of the psalmist, the one who has companions who also fear the Lord. It leads him when he looks at a sunset, when he looks at the cosmos, to not simply stay there, but to go back to Yahweh, the Lord, the creator and sustainer, the one whose handiwork is manifold in his creation. It leads him return to the painter, return to the great teacher and say, teach me your statutes. Teach me your statutes. When the Lord sees me, I want them to see the Lord. When others see me, I want them to see the Lord. When others see me suffer, I want them to see the Lord. When others see our church, we want them to see the Lord. When others see us deal with adversity, we want them to see the Lord. That is our calling. That's the the prayer of the psalmist. That's het. Next steps. Next steps. Question one. How has the Lord become more visible through my life over the last few months? I want to give you 30 seconds or so to think about that specific question between you and the Lord. Ask the Lord, Lord, how have you become more visible through my life over the last few months? And think of specific examples. Is there an area of forgiveness the Lord has led you to walk in? Is there an area of trusting in his word that he's led you to walk in? Ask the Lord, Lord, how have you become more visible through my life over the last few months? You ever taken a test and you didn't know what to write? You said, I don't know the answer. Obviously, we would need a lot more seconds to pass as we really started to think through our relationships and our tasks. Maybe for you, you look at that moment and you say, you know what, I don't don't really know. As I said from the very beginning, allow that side of the coin to lead to the other side of the coin. It says, Lord, I don't know that I've really sought you very much these last few months to be seen through my life, through my suffering, this thing that I'm wrestling with. 
but Lord, I want this to be true of my life. Secondly, how will the Lord become more visible? How will the Lord, what's your resolve this morning? How will the Lord become more visible through my routines, my struggles, and my relationships this week? How do I desire the Lord to become more visible through my life so that when others see me, they will see the Lord? When others see me, they will see the Lord. It is He that we worship. He is our King. He is your worth. He is your value. He is the Good Shepherd. He leads me beside still waters. He's worthy of our lives. Let's stand together as we sing praises to this King.